Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, where we shall take up where we finish this morning with the seventh verse and begin looking at the eighth verse and onward in this book of Esther, written for our patience and comfort that we might increase in hope that there's a God in heaven who cares about every one of his children and oversees the affairs that influence their lives and will raise them out of the dung hill, raise them out of the dust, and set them on high if they are obedient and faithful. And we shall certainly see that in the book of Esther. What have we covered so far? There is a king, the third king of the Persian Empire, named King Ahasuerus, who is married to a queen named Vashti. At a great royal banquet, she refuses to come at his command, and so he divorces her, and now he's without a queen. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, when he realizes what he's done, he realizes he needs a queen. He wants a queen. So he calls for his counselors again, and they come to him in verse 2 and tell him that he ought to have a beauty contest with winner-take-all for the most part. And that's what we'll see in the rest of this chapter 2, the beauty contest that one King Ahasuerus held in Shusham the palace. We studied this morning all the way down through verse 7, and we ended with the words, The maid, in verse 7, that is Esther the maid, was fair and beautiful. And the point I made this morning was that each of you children especially should make sure that you never complain, you never worry, you never cry, and you never let teasing affect you because you may not be the best looking in your class, because you may not be the tallest, you may not be the strongest, you may not be the best athlete, and all kinds of things might happen to you, or God might have taken things away from you. You might have to wear glasses when you're in the third grade, and they might call you four eyes. But you don't care, because God made you the way you are as long as you are doing your best to be what you can be. Now, there's two sides of that coin to look at, children. First of all, you shouldn't criticize God or complain or be sad about the way God made you. That's very important, and we spent 20 minutes on that this morning. The second thing, for those of you who have been given a lot, you better make sure you use it all. If you've been given good looks, make sure you are as attractive as possible. If you've been given a mind, make sure you develop it and use it for all that you can be. Use the things God's given you or they can disappear. And remember this rule that God has. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And if you're gifted in an area, you better use it. So there's two sides to that coin. Remember the egghead. Remember the prick in the left ear. Remember the five foot nine in stature. Remember the lightest football in the Southeastern Conference of the Detroit area. That was your pastor. Now listen, I've confessed to you. All of you young people can feel free to come to me and tell me what you feel bad about yourself. I told all that this morning, Bakers and Pepper. I was the lightest at 125 pounds, you know I was the latest fullback in the Southeastern Conference. God made each of us for an end that he only has designed, 
and you don't know what he has in store for you. If you would have asked me when I was 16 years old, did God make you to be a minister of a church in Greenville, South Carolina? Something would have happened one way or another. I, w I couldn't have dreamed of that when I was 16 years old, and no one else could have dreamed of it either, except some people who must have been blind in their faith to have ever imagined that God could use me to be your pastor. It, it was, I mean, Charles Manson does not make up, now I wasn't like Jim in some ways, but in other ways I was. I mean, there are just certain kinds of people that you don't think God has anything for them in that field. God can do amazing things with someone. Don't complain about the way God's made you. God has something important for you to do, whether that important thing may be to be the fine, supportive wife of some man that you're going to make a better man by being a great wife for him. You say, well, that sounds rather boring. How would you like to have been Esther and have been a supportive wife to King Ahasuerus? That wouldn't have been bad living. God has all kinds of plans in store for his children. Now, we sometimes ridicule the first spiritual law that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And for good reason we ridicule that, because that's offered to sinners indiscriminately. But when we talk about the children of God, God does have plans in store, and a wonderful plan it is for your life if you'll obey him. He said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what the Savior said. Now, I believe that. And while we have to ridicule the statement because it's abused on one side, let's not run over and jump in the other ditch and, ditch and get all muddy because we deny that God has a purpose for every one of his children. That's what the Old Testament is written about, isn't it? God picking up some of the lowliest of people, David. What was David before he became king? He was a shepherd boy. Do you know what shepherd boys smelled like? Like sheep. Amen. Like sheep. And he made him king. God is dealing with his people. And it isn't that what we read this morning in Psalm 35? Let the Lord be magnified. Why did we read that in Psalm 35? Why should we say, let the Lord be magnified? Look at it again. Just keep your finger at Esther 2. This is an important point. Psalm 35 and verse 27. Let the Lord be magnified. I get excited about the book of Esther for this reason right here. Let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. God takes pleasure in taking some poor orphan, in the case of Esther, and raising her up to a great position of prosperity. And a poor old Jew named Mordecai, or Mordecai, and raise him up to an important position in that Persian government also. Keep that in mind, children. Be all that you can be. And remember, if God gave you more, you have to be more. Sometimes 
when I will criticize a church member for behavior on their part, and they'll say to me, but what about some other members? And I'll say, God's given you more in my judgment, therefore I expect more. And there is that difference. Listen, no two church members in here are equal to each other. I expect more from some members than I do other members. So does God. And make sure with what God's given you, you are the best. God have mercy on my poor soul for wasting the first 17 years of my life. He's been merciful. I mean, when we sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, how many of you believe those words and know that they're personal? I wasted 17 years. I didn't apply myself to anything but evil. Esther chapter 2, verse 8. Verses 1 through 4, the counselors of Ahasuerus propose the beauty pageant. Verses 5 through 7 introduce Mordecai, the Jew, and Esther, his cousin, right, his cousin. Now verse 8, so it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, what decree? The executive order that there shall be an empire-wide beauty pageant with the winner taking all and becoming his queen. When that commandment and decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together under, Shush under Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. So Esther has now been included in this group of maidens that are coming to participate in this beauty pageant. One more time, the hand of God. The men, the princes of Persia, found Esther. You know, she could have been at home reading, or she could have been a librarian. We don't know what Mordecai had her employed as. But they found her, and she's there. Every step, if you're thinking, God is working to putting her on the throne. They found her. She's gathered in. Verse 9. And the maiden pleased him, that is Haggai, this chamberlain that took care of the women for King Ahasuerus. And she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. You know, this house of the women must have been a gigantic condominium project. Trust me, Ahasuerus didn't have four there vying for the title. Josephus says he had 400, but I'll, you can drop that as soon as you pick it up because we don't know that. But that's what Josephus said. All I know is, and I'm going to show you this, it took him four years to find the right one, which means there were probably quite a few. I'll, show, I'll prove that from the Bible. But they had this big condominium project, and Haggai was so pleased with Esther, her appearance, her behavior, that he gave her the finest suite there. She had seven maidens to take care of her because they did take good care of their women before they met the king. Now, I want to make some practical points from this. How would one of our proud women today who call themselves a liberate, liberated woman have behaved before Haggai? 
How did Esther, this godly girl, young, fair maiden, earn this favor? Now think about it. This is not exactly what now women would go for. To hear that a king was going to parade one woman a night through his quarters until he found one he liked. What would Glorious Steinem say about that? What would... We'll just leave him there. What would they say to that idea? They'd hate it. Well, now take a proud woman, put her there. She feels like she's being treated like a piece of meat. That's what a Glorious Steinem would look at it as. Listen, for any wise woman, this is the means to fame in a short hurry. I'm gonna, the next 12 months are going to be spent in diligent practice and preparation to make sure I'm the winner. I'm just a piece of meat. I mean, if he doesn't like me, it's over, and we're going to see that in just a minute. A proud woman would have resented the contest and made things miserable for Haggai. Wouldn't they have? Being taken by force by the princes and brought to this place, to just be a piece of meat before King Ahasuerus. That's how they would look at it. I'm using the words of the world. Did Esther do that? She couldn't have, because it says that Haggai was very pleased with the maiden, and she found favor in his eyes. These women were going to be the wives, even if they failed, concubines or wives of the king of Persia. What about a haughty woman? Now, you know, all these women were beautiful. When you get a whole crowd of beautiful women together, you've got a lot of conceit. And now here in this condominium project, can you imagine the conceit running up and down the halls as these women have to spend 12 months together combing their hair before the mirrors and putting on all the oil that we're going to read about shortly? Can you imagine the conceit that was there? The conceit would have resulted in those women despising the lowly eunuch Haggai, right? You know what I mean? Looking down at him and treating him like a piece of dirt because they were such beautiful things. Esther didn't do that. How do we know Esther didn't do that? Because Haggai was pleased with her and she found favor in his eyes. A word of warning to you women to recognize and respect the position that men have. Now, that doesn't mean you get down on your hands and knees in the mud puddle and let them walk over top of you on all occasions. There is a time where you do stand up, but that is not when you're being chosen to be a man's wife. In a situation like this, he was king and he was also a suitor of means. You know, the proverb, Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 22, he said, a beautiful woman that is without discretion, is like a, a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. Now, Esther could have been that. Can you imagine a cocky and proud, conceited, beautiful woman there under his care? But she wasn't. She found favor in his eyes, and the maiden pleased him. It tells us right there in the first part of verse 9. And so he gave her the very best of treatment that he possibly could. Isn't it interesting when you read about the favor that she immediately received in verse 9? Isn't that the providence of God? 
Doesn't it remind you of Joseph when he was taken down into Egypt, put into Potiphar's house, immediately received the favor of Potiphar? And then as Potiphar put him in charge and realized that everything Joseph was in charge of was getting better and better, he put everything into his control to where it said he didn't know what he owned. Joseph only knew. Now, uh, that is trusting a man because Potiphar could see that the blessing was with Joseph. Then Joseph is slandered, put in prison, and pretty soon the keeper of the prison realizes that he should put things in the hands of Joseph. God is always taking care of his people wherever they be. Whether they've been sold into Egypt as a young lad or whether they're in a dungeon of a prison accused of rape of an official's wife. God takes care of his people. Let the Lord be magnified. He will raise up his people to a place of prosperity in due time. That is what the book of Esther is about. In every verse, we can see God dealing with men for the benefit of his people. Verse 10, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. For Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Another aspect of the character of Esther, obedient. This man wasn't even her father, wasn't even her uncle. He was a cousin, but he had raised her as a father, so she obeyed him. And the obedience is going to be repeated in about a chapter in more careful terms about how carefully she obeyed in not disclosing the fact that she was a Jew. You wouldn't have got far there with King Ahasuerus if that had been known. She kept that to herself. Now, there's a scriptural basis for that, isn't there? Isn't it found in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11? Proverbs 29 and 11, where Solomon writes and tells wise men, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Do you know what that is in 20th century street language? You know how to play your aces. It's a fool that's always whipping his aces out and letting you see them. A wise man keeps his aces in. And for those of you who think that I'm talking about keeping things to yourselves and not talking about them with fellow church members, you're wrong. I'm talking about dealing with an enemy like the king of Persia when you're a Jew. You don't need to tell him you're a Jew. Some of these Pharisee fundamentalists think that if you're going to tell the truth, you've got to tell all the truth all the time. God never said that. God said a wise man keeps it in till afterwards. Keep your aces that you don't need to use. Now, Mordecai had told her not to tell anyone that she was a Jew and to keep the fact that her people were the Jews from anyone's knowledge and also not to allow anyone to know of her relationship with Mordecai. Notice what it says. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. Let's keep all that secret. Now Mordecai's mind's working. And again, here we see how we ought to behave in this world. You come up with your plans. You let your heart devise things and the Lord will direct the steps. Mordecai is all, what do you think Mordecai is thinking about? He's planning on her winning it. 
and he knows she's not going to win it parading under the banner of a Jew. So he wants her to keep that to herself, and he's commanded her that way, and she's obedient. She is an obedient woman. That we can commend her for. Verse 11, And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the woman, women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. You know, he walks by every day to pick up the gossip on who's making the most progress and who appears to be the favorite, what the odds are, you know. Every race, there's, an, there's odds makers. And so you can imagine that there were odds. I'm going to show you that, that before she ever made it to the king, the odds were definitely in her favor because God had blessed her abundantly with beauty. Remember when David was fleeing from Absalom with only a few men, and he realized that if Absalom came after him, he could destroy him. And Absalom had his old counselor, Ahithophel. And David prayed, O Lord, defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Now that's David's prayer. But before David prayed that prayer, what did David do? David sent Hushai the archite back to lie to Absalom in order to overthrow the counsel of Ahithophel. We are to devise our means. We are to trust the Lord to direct our steps. And Mordecai is making all the preparations of a prudent man that Solomon would have been proud of to accomplish getting Esther to the throne of Persia. What's Mordecai back in Shushan for? To earn the favor of the king to get Jerusalem rebuilt. He's come back from the rebuilding because it stopped with the letter from Artaxerxes, Ezra chapter 4. We covered that this morning. He's slick. He's a slick operator. I mean, he just didn't jump in there and say, King, King, can I have a minute? You know, King would have said, take his head off, boys. That's the rule. He's playing his cards very carefully, and he's trusting the Lord. You say, well, it doesn't say he's trusting the Lord. It doesn't say anything about the Lord in this book. Should we ignore him altogether? Everything we know about Mordecai, he was a very godly man, and a godly man devises his way and trusts the Lord to direct his steps. And that's what's happening right here in the middle of chapter 2. Now we come to verse 12, and we read a little bit about the vanity of kings. Verses 12 through 14 describe the beauty contest. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, they didn't all go in at once, they went one at a time. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women. For so were the days of their purifications accomplished. To wit, the Holy Ghost will tell you what it was, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Each woman was required to spend twelve months in preparing herself for the king. They received six months of oil of myrrh for texture, six months of oils of sweet odors, Six months with sweet odors for smell, scent, perfume is what they were putting on. So six months for texture, six months for odor. Now you got to remember that King Ahasuerus is drawing from nations as widely dispersed as Ethiopia and India. Social customs haven't always been the best 
in some of those nations, especially when you didn't have running water, oil of Olay, and other things that women use nowadays. So they tried to make up for it in a crash course for 12 months where the woman was dedicated to purifying herself. Now there's a couple more reasons for that. The length of purification also added a great deal of weight to the solemnity and seriousness of meeting the king. I mean, when you made preparations for a whole year stuck in a house with other women, it was big time. I mean, you were expected to perform, and it was an important meeting when you finally did meet the king. There was another reason why all those women were in there for a year. It guaranteed that any children born to these women were definitely the king's. I mean, just think when you read the Bible and why they did things the way they did. No one else snuck in there with a child conceived by anyone else. It would be the king's because the, the inheritance of the king would go to these children. They were going to guarantee that they were definitely his. And trust me, Haggai wasn't going to give them any trouble. Each woman, we're told in verse 13, then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. When it was her night to go out on the date with the king, you know, whatever they did, she was allowed to take whatever she wanted, whether it was a little jazz band so she could have music or some little cans of incense for the odor or whatever garments she wanted. Listen, the king's treasury was there. She got whatever she wanted. Verse 13 tells us that. When they came to the king, whatsoever they wanted would accompany them out of the house of the women unto the king's house. Now imagine this gigantic condominium project where all these women are kept under Haggai. He's the manager of this place. And when it's their turn to go to the king, they get whatever they need. It's their big night. And they go see King Ahasuerus. Now verse 14 tells us what happens if they don't win. Remember, it's winner take all. Verse 14, In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women, to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. They've changed in status here. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. You basically had first, second, and third prize. One got first prize, that was going to be queen of Persia. Second prize was, he called you by your name, which meant that sometime you'd be loaded into his computer and sometime you'd come back. If he didn't call you by name, it was all over. You were a concubine locked up in the house of women for the rest of your life. No other man could have you and the king could never see you again either. That's the situation. Now, that, that situation's important. God the Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Do you know why it's important? Mordecai and Esther took a big chance, didn't they? Didn't they? She could have committed suicide. Now, a good fundamentalist would probably teach she should have committed suicide. I don't know if they would or not, but, I mean, the teaching I've heard would, would agree with that. There's nothing immoral about what's going on here at all. Every one of these women became the king's wives. You say it doesn't say wife, it says concubine. Read the Bible and you'll find out that a concubine is a wife. It's just a lower wife. 
David had wives and concubines. They're, bo they're both his wives. The concubine is just a lower wife. She doesn't have the privilege of his wives. For instance, when David fled from Jerusalem, he took his wives with him, left his concubines to keep the house. There was just a difference in grade. The children of the wives were going to get more than the children of the concubines. King Saul had his wives and his concubines. The Bible's filled with wives and concubines. A concubine is a lower-leveled wife without the privilege of a higher wife or the queen in this particular case. They'd end up in another house where they would live the rest of their lives. You say, this sounds terrible. Saul, David, Solomon, and other kings did the same thing. And God told David, as I told you this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, Nathan the prophet told him, you had all that you wanted, but you shouldn't have taken another man's wife. God did allow polygamy on the part of a number of men in the Old Testament. Now, with our civil authority decreeing what they have, and with God making very clear, again in the New Testament with the preaching of Jesus Christ, that in the beginning it was one and one, and with Malachi chapter 2 that says God created two, one, don't think about it. Don't think about it. You know, I've made the statement before, and I'll make it again. If we lived in some country like Saudi Arabia, and it was the Saudi church, and some sheik came in, and he had three wives, and they lined up beside him, and there were 14 kids in the row behind them, and he wanted to join the Saudi church. We wouldn't ask him to get rid of two in order to become a member. He'd be a member just like there were members in Corinth who were guilty of all kinds of sexual crimes. From homosexuality, forget homosexual, sodomy without natural affection the way it's put in 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, on the whole gambit of sexual crimes. Because Corinth was like a San Francisco today. If we had a man like that come, we'd take him in. But what would he not be doing in that congregation? He wouldn't be a bishop and he wouldn't be a deacon because a bishop and a deacon must be the husband of one wife, as the Bible tells us plainly. But you can forget about it. Okay? I know it's hard, men. But forget about it. Forget about it. King Ahasuerus. You know what this shows? It shows the vanity of kings, doesn't it? I mean, they think they can own everything in the whole nation. Can you imagine all the eligible bachelors at this time? I mean, all the women just disappeared. Do you realize that? All the good-looking women just disappeared. The whole, from all across the nation, from one end to the other. The princes had gone out and taken them all, put them in this house. I mean, all the very finest of the women. Well, now it comes time for Esther to go in. Let me go back to wives and concubines for a minute. Abraham had both. Abraham had both. Abraham had a wife named Sarah, and he had a wife named Keturah, and he had concubines. And you can read about them in Scripture. Jacob. Remember, Jacob had four wives. Remember, Rachel and Leah were considered wives. Billah and Zippah were not. They were concubines. 
because they were the ladies' handmaids. They didn't hold the same position that Rachel and Leah had. Uh, can you find any, how much emphasis in the Bible do we have about the burial places for those two handmaids? See, so they were at a different level. The sons there, you know, all be, they made up the 12 tribes of Israel, but there was a difference between the respect and treatment, level of treatment that the women received. Verse 15, now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. Another thing, another little bit of information here about the character of Esther. Instead of being one of these haughty women who think they know how to dress, who'd she trust? The man who knows best. Women, for your information, clothes designers today are men, not women. They're not real men, but they're men. I mean, they're, they're fags that design women's clothing. But a good, an important thing, there's a lesson here. You say, well, you get a practical lesson out of every verse. Well, I try. I try. To me, there's something in this verse to get. Esther followed the advice of Haggai and didn't try to dress herself up to please the king. Do you know why? She wouldn't have known how. Women don't know how to dress in two ways. One, to avoid immodesty, and two, to attract a man. A man will do far better. Do you know why? The woman wasn't designed with the mind bent that the man has on what makes a woman attractive. And anybody who's been married to a woman knows that. She will miss things that are immodest that a man doesn't take a nanosecond for him to realize. And a man will realize something that can flatter his wife more than she will because he understands what flatters a wife or what flatters a woman when the woman doesn't really see it as clearly and as strongly and as quickly as a man does. Now, here's the point, and it's taught in the book of Proverbs. Where do you go when you're seeking advice? When you need help, where does the Bible say to go for safety? To counselors, to counselors. Well, now, if you were being taken care of by a chamberlain whose total profession was to find a woman and groom her to please the king, would you come in there with your cocky ideas about how you want to dress, or would you be begging him to tell you all his secrets and what you want to do? I, I love the 15th verse there. When it says she didn't require, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain and keeper of the women, appointed. She did, I, I don't want anything. You tell me what I ought to wear. You tell me what I ought to do. You tell me what I ought to take with me. That's a wise woman. She's looking for counsel. You say, well, she had all those women. I mean, all those women put together would have been the, would have been the equivalent of having Vogue and Cosmopolitan and Mademoiselle there. Surely she would have known with all those women you get the point, ladies? Use your husbands on your apparel many times. Some of you women know better. There's those problems, too. I recognize that. A man generally, though, will be able to help his wife if he's considerate and thinks and will speak to you from his heart. But I, I like that about Esther. She's using all the wisdom she possibly can. You know, can you imagine the number of 
tales that were floating around for a year on how to handle the king from all these women and how they were going to do it? Well, she doesn't want to do anything but what he appoints. And notice what we read immediately. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. All they did was deck her out in whatever Haggai said, and everybody there realized the odds are on Esther. Immediately, same verse, second sentence in the verse, they looked at her and realized that she was very beautiful, and the odds were that she was going to get the prize. Verse 16, So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal, in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, when did he hold the feast where Vashti disobeyed? Third year. Now, it's the seventh year when Esther finally makes it there. You have two options. One, he got along for four years without a queen. Two, he had a whole lot of women that were Haggai was taking care of. I'll opt for the latter. The Bible does say there were many maidens gathered in Shushan. And Esther was definitely not the first based on the fact of the four, the four years that passed where he didn't have a queen. So Esther, verse 16, was taken unto King Ahasuerus in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. One verse summarizes the whole thing. She came in, and she took all. But who was on her side? The God that can turn the hearts of kings, as the book of Proverbs tells us, 21 and verse 1. The king loved her. Do you understand the fear naturally speaking, that would have been torturing her body and soul going in to see that king without the faith in God that she had. Do you understand? That's why the Holy Ghost gives us the record of what was going on. If she failed, there was a very great probability of being locked up as a concubine, never seeing any man again. That's called a cloistered None, or a cloistered nunnery. No man can see the women. They're locked up. Cloistered means locked up. That was the risk she was running. And the king loved her. Can you imagine? She'd never see Mordecai again. Listen, men didn't play around with the king's wives. You're going to see that later in the chapter 2. You didn't play around with the king's wives. Mordecai wouldn't have been allowed to have seen her. They were locked and put away in the house of the king's women. But the king loved Esther above all the women. And she found grace and favor, and he put the crown on her head. She took the whole prize. Verse 18, now you're going to see more about Esther. And I love Esther. Listen to this 18th verse. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. 
Now let me make a few points about this feast. Who were the attendants or the guests of this feast? Princes, the, the princes and servants of King Ahasuerus. Who were the attendants at the feast when Vashti refused to come in before the king? Chapter 1 and verse 3, the princes and the servants of the king. Now, did the princes and the servants know why he had divorced her four years earlier? The whole thing happened in front of them. So what does he do immediately with his new queen? He holds a feast, and he even names the feast in, in her name. And friends, if you don't know she wasn't there, you've got problems in understanding what was going on. He was setting a very definite precedent, and she was the focal point of the feast. When you call a feast Esther's feast, who is the one person that is going to be there? Esther. Esther was there and did what Vashti wouldn't do. Oh, I don't want all those leering men looking at me. Oh, shh. Get in there anyway. The king had said, come and wear the crown royal for the glory of my kingdom on the last day of this feast. She didn't come. Esther was there. The feast was made in her name. How do you know she was there? Listen, the king was excited this time. He was so excited he reduced taxes, and that takes a great deal of excitement <laughs> because it says he made a release to the provinces. He released some of the provinces from their obligations and gave gifts according to the state of the king. I mean, the king just opened his treasury. He was thrilled. He had a queen who was beautiful. Remember, she, had, she obtained favor from everyone that looked on her. She was gorgeous. She was a knockout. And he was proud of her there, so excited that he lowered taxes and gave gifts out of the treasury and called it Esther's Feast. Why do you think he called it Esther's Feast? Now, one more snub on what Vashti had done to him. He even called it by her name. Now verse 19, there's a lot about the character of Esther if you'll read your Bibles carefully. Verse 19, there's more about the character of Esther. You don't see it unless you read it carefully. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. You say, well, what does that say about Esther? And what about these virgins being gathered together the second time? The nature of men being what it is, Ahasuerus enjoyed his first beauty contest so much, he had another one. You say, well, that's terrible. Didn't he love Esther? I thought it said he loved Esther. Yes, and David loved Abigail. David loved Michael. David loved Bathsheba. But that didn't mean he only had three. You say, you look like you're saying that with disgust. Well, it sounds, it, it gets to be a little too much after a while when Esther is his queen. But given the situation, the vanity of kings and the heart of men, I can fully understand. But notice when this does occur, when the next beauty contest takes place, Mordecai is not walking outside hoping to pick up gossip about where Esther stands in the rankings. Where is he now? Sitting in the gate. What does it mean to sit in the gate? Does that mean you have a tin cup 
hoping that people who pass by will drop a nickel in it for you. That is a place of authority. That's where the judges sat, because the gate was the focal point. People from the countryside would come to the gate. People from the city would come to the gate. That's where they'd meet. That's where the judges would make their judgment on civil matters, family matters. The Israelites did that. The Bible is filled with men sitting in the gate. Where did Boaz go when he was going to get Ruth to be his bride? To the gate, the city gate, to get the elders of the city. Mordecai, a Jew, is now in a position of authority. This guy had gone back to Jerusalem. How did he just come walking back into Shushan and get a position of authority as a Jew? He's got someone pulling for him, and her name is Esther. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. That doesn't mean she didn't help him get a promotion. She just didn't say that that's my cousin. Hadn't done that yet. She hadn't said I'm a Jew, he's a Jew, we're both Jews. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Isn't that precious? This woman has her character verse by verse by verse through here, if you'll read it. She's now the queen of Persia. She could do anything she wanted to Mordecai. How many teenagers say, well, wait till I'm 18, they'll see who's who. Wait till I'm 21, and they'll see who's boss. She's queen. And how does it say she obeyed Mordecai? like as when she was a little child brought up by him. There's an obedient woman who understands. See, yes, she's got a husband named King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus happens to be a Persian pagan king. She also happens to have a cousin who raised her and who was in all practical purposes her father, not only in a fleshly relationship that he had to her, but also a spiritual relationship of guidance as another true worshiper of God. And she kept obeying him. And notice how the Holy Spirit qualifies the obedience, just like when she was a child. The fact of being queen didn't go to her head. Women, if you happen to go out and get an office job and you are very successful and God has gifted you with ability and God promotes you because all promotion comes from the Lord, and you meet with some degree of success for you to come home and treat your husband any differently, than if you couldn't do anything but were totally dependent upon him is not like Esther. And now we run into some trouble in, ver in chapter 3. But before we do that, the Holy Spirit is going to stick in a little clue just like he did in the book of Ruth. Remember Ruth? Where we have that one verse stuck in there about Boaz being a rich man which doesn't really seem like it's related to what we're reading. It's a clue. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to get lost in what's taking place, but to keep little hints in the back of your mind at what could be used at future dates. I like the way Scripture's written. Verses 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. They wanted promotion, he wouldn't promote him, for instance. And so they're upset with him. And they want to...
Mordecai sits in the gate. He happens to overhear some gossip between these two angry men. We're going to kill that king for what he did to us. He goes and tells Esther. Esther tells the king, but tells the king in the name of Mordecai. Mordecai found this information for you. The king searched the matter out. It's the glory of a king to search out a matter. It's the glory of a king to search out a matter. King Ahasuerus is going to let us down shortly in that matter. But it's the glory of a king to search out a matter. And here he's glorious. He searches out the matter, we're told. When inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they held congressional hearings and debated the matter back and forth year after year and taxed the Persian Empire to support these two conspirators and then finally put them on probation. Isn't that a bunch of baloney? They found the matter out and they hung the two men. Wouldn't government be simple if we'd do that? It wouldn't take ten men in Washington. Do you know how many it would take? One and a secretary. We'll give them that much. It wouldn't take a whole lot to run a government if we did things the right way. Do you remember Sirhan Sirhan? Could this nation muster two or three witnesses that Sirhan Sirhan shot Robert F. Kennedy? Two or three million? Twenty or thirty million? Didn't we all see it? How about when Jack Ruby shot Lee Oswald? Could we muster two or three witnesses? Why even take him to trial? Did you have to make an inquisition in the hallway of the, where was that, the Dallas courthouse there when he was being transported from one prison to another? Why, was there any inquisition needed to be made? They just should have pulled a gun and shot him. Take a day. If you have to, why? He's a murderer. Get rid of him. That's the way it was handled, even in a pagan empire. Do you know why? Because Noah and his sons were taught when they stepped off the ark, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That was not a law of Moses. That was a law directed to Moses. And his, Did I say Moses? The last time Moses rode on the ark, was a cold day in Hades. <laughs> it was Noah who was on the ark. But when Noah got off the ark, after the wickedness that had filled the world, God didn't say a whole lot when you read Genesis chapter 9, 10, 11, but he did say this, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And that was to Noah and his sons, and by his three sons was the earth replenished after the flood. These men knew that law and they practiced it. Praise be to God that there was some justice in the earth, though we have precious little left in our nation. Now they took care of the matter in a hurry. What can we learn about Mordecai? Mordecai got involved. Did you know that most people today wouldn't get involved? I mean, if they saw something like that going on, they'd say to themselves, well, we shouldn't really get involved. We could get ourselves in trouble. It might be dangerous. We should let the king take care of himself. After all, he's a big boy. Mordecai gets involved. It is the duty of those under authority to inform the person in authority of any evil going on under his realm. 
You say that sounds like tattling. Not when it's done to the person in authority. What is his job? To see everything. That's why he's called an overseer. When you come to the pastor and tell him something that's disturbing you about someone else, you are not doing an ungodly thing. So many times people have said, I don't want to gossip. Well, listen, when I detect gossip on your part, that you are trying to slander someone or make them look evil in my eyes, you'll get a big earful. Some of you have. I don't want to hear about it. Anyone in authority has the right, and anyone under authority has the responsibility of helping the person in authority by disclosing information like that to him. For instance, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and said, I hear there's envyings and divisions among you, and they of Chloe's household has told me. Do you need a better example? There was a tattler, wasn't there? But you're telling the one in authority whose job it was to oversee the congregation. But when you're Paul, and you're 500 miles away preaching the gospel in Illyricum, or wherever he was, you need help. You can't see everything. Just like if you were working for a boss and you heard about one of the employees about to steal a trade secret of the company and go sell it to a competitor, what would you do? Well, I don't want to get involved. That'd be tattling. I might be violating the scriptures where it says we shouldn't be whisperers. Listen, whisperers and tattlers are when you tell someone about something in order to present them in an evil light. When you go tell a pastor about something going on in the congregation, or when you go tell a boss about something going on in a place of employment, or when you go tell a government about what's going on in some place that is putting the government in danger or defeating their purposes and intent for existence, you are serving that position of authority by helping them do their job. Mordecai went and did it. We live in a society, most of you have read these stories, There'll be a subway train full of people in New York City. Some poor woman will be assaulted by a thug and have her purse taken, and able-bodied businessmen sit there on their duffs and do nothing. Well, I don't want to get involved. Listen, he ought to get very involved. He ought to get involved about as far as Bernard Getz got involved. Protect elderly women protect children. We have a generation that doesn't want to get involved, doesn't want to get involved. Well, sometimes we need to get involved, especially when it's a position of authority that can be aided by the involvement. Why did Mordecai overhear Big Fan and Teresh talking about killing King Ahasuerus? Why? providence of God directed Mordecai to be there and to hear it because as we read in the last clause of the 23rd verse, the fact that Mordecai had saved the king's life by informing about this conspiracy was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king, and that's going to become very important. All the way through this book, you can see God dealing with the different players and preparing them for what was about to happen as we keep going further. 
I want to introduce the next character before we quit for this evening. There's a lot of wisdom here. In verses 21 through 23, why did Mordecai go through Esther? To go himself, where would he have to speak to the king? In public. In public, what are you doing when you rat on two murderers? <laughs> You're exposing yourself to the same danger. The Bible says, The prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. Did Mordecai hide himself in this matter? Yes, Esther, you go tell him. But, you know, give credit where credit is due when you tell him, and that's what she did. But he kept himself out of getting in trouble. I mean, if there, those two men, it tells us, kept the door of the king's place. Now, how in the world are you going to stand in there before the king and tell him that the two men over at the door are trying to kill him without the two men at the door knowing that you just told the king? You're putting yourself at risk. It's just being smart. So he goes and tells Esther to tell the king. You know, when Esther was made queen and Ahasuerus loved her and she found favor and grace in his sight, there were a couple other women who spoke some words that I'm sure Esther could have spoken if she had had the opportunity or they had been recorded for us. You can read a prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that you ought to read sometimes, women. It's the prayer of Hannah, who says the Lord is able to lift up from the dust and exalt. Because she had no children, and that other wife of her husband had many children, and she was mocked and made fun of for not having any. And then she had a son, the pride of Jewish women, that she was able to give to the Lord. And she uttered some beautiful words in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 8. And then you come over to Luke chapter 1, and the Virgin Mary, when she was told that she was going to bear the Christ child, said the very same words, that the Lord is able to lift up and exalt those of low estate. Here's the orphan made queen. There's Mary, a poor woman who had to offer two turtle doves for her sacrifice, a poor woman's offering that God Almighty lifted up and exalted very high. You know, Mordecai shows his zeal for the cause of the Lord of hosts by having Esther run the risk of not taking all. You say, well, what about Esther? Well, the Bible puts the responsibility on the man responsible for the woman. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 through 38, you can read about it's the man, it's the father who decides whether to give or whether not to give his daughters in marriage. You can read it. It says, So then he that hath decreed in his heart not to give his virgin doeth better, if it's a comely thing for her to do that. Here's Mordecai. He's there with a purpose. His purpose is to get the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem like God had commanded. And he is showing his zeal by taking a great sacrifice of Esther if God is not in the matter. But his trust in God gives him that ability to do that. And God honors the zeal. We've read enough about Esther in chapter 2 to realize she was the woman that feared the Lord. How do you know she feared the Lord? The way she feared Mordecai and the way she behaved. Proverbs tells me favor is deceitful. 
Do you think all those women showed the most favors they could on their date with King Ahasuerus? Maximum favor. Favor is deceitful, however. Were they beautiful? Indeed. But Solomon went on to say, beauty is vain. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And Esther was praised. Proverbs chapter 17 says, a wise servant can be promoted past the sun. A captive orphan in a foreign land can be promoted past beautiful natives. May God be praised. Let the Lord be magnified, Amen. as we can read in the 35th Psalm. Let's quickly introduce a less desirable character, a most wicked man named Haman in the first part of chapter 3. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did re him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. These six verses will close for tonight, but let me briefly describe what we have here. I love the God we worship. And do you know what I love about the God we worship from these six verses? Verse 1 the fact that he promoted Haman. Did God know? Friends, look at me. Did God know what he was going to do to Haman? Yes. Why did he promote him? Listen, so he can fall farther. Listen, get the man up, get him cocky, and then cut his legs off. Why did he raise him up? I'll answer you with Scripture, even for this same reason have I raised up Pharaoh. How do you show the glory of a king? By taking the worthiest opponent and eliminating him. Isn't that how you do it? You, you know, you, you've heard me say that I like football games that run around 50 to 70 to nothing. But I like the opponent to be a good opponent. I just like domination. So does God, a king against whom there is no rising up. He promotes Haman as high as he can get him without making him king and then wipes him out. I love verse 1 where it says that after these things, not a mention is made of Ahasuerus doing anything good for Mordecai, but he does it for Haman. Now what made the king forget about Mordecai who had just saved his life and promote Haman? the providence of God. Look for it everywhere you read in this book. It's filled with it. Haman. 
when a man is promoted, and this is something we all need to guard against, the risk is it will harden your heart. The, the higher Pharaoh got, when Moses came in and said, the Lord God saith, let my people go, he said, who is the Lord God that I should obey him? That's because he was Pharaoh. He wasn't used to being told what to do. God will get men up, and by getting them up, it hardens their hearts through pride. The prosperity of fools. When you get promoted, and when things are going well for you, you be on the lookout that it doesn't harden your heart. It did Pharaoh, and it did Haman. That's what we read in verse 6. It did him scorn and even think of killing Mordecai alone. Why would that cause him scorn? Because he thought he was such a big sneeze because he had been promoted. Now in verse 2, we are told, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now if Haman had been promoted to the number one position in the Persian government, would there need to be a command going out that the servants of the king should honor Haman? No. I mean, if he's the king's right-hand man, he gets the honor. But you didn't have to teach Persians that there was respect due to the officers of the king. This is important. I'm leading you into an explanation for what going on here. Why was the command given for the men to bow and reverence Haman? Well, if we keep reading, we find out that Mordecai's excuse for why he didn't do it was that he was a Jew. Now, did the Jews have anything against respecting authority? No. What they call their leaders? Gods with a small g. They definitely believed in authority. Well, Mordecai's a good Jew. He knows that he ought to respect authority. I mean, so far he's been very circumspect in all that he's done. Why doesn't he bow and worship Haman? There are two explanations. Very seldom will you hear me give two explanations for a passage, but I'll give you two and you can take your pick. Number one is when it says, and this is the one I lean toward myself, although the other has bearing upon it, and you'll see why I give you two options. When the king made a commandment concerning Haman, it must have been extraordinary worship that Haman was to receive. Persian kings, it's known by history, were worshipped as deity, not just as king. Persian kings were worshipped as deity. After the Greeks took over, one of the Greeks had been in the court of Darius, the last Darius that Alexander the Great destroyed, and had worshipped Darius as a god. Alexander the Great had him put to death. It was a fact among the Persian kings that they were also worshipped as a deity. And if Haman is number one, and if Haman is as egotistical as we're going to read he is, he may very well have asked for that privilege. And so the king had made a command because this command was extraordinary. You didn't have to teach someone in the Persian government to respect the king's right-hand man. 
And Haman had been advanced and set above all the princes that were with Ahasuerus. He got respect. This was a command that was different. And somehow Mordecai uses the excuse. He discloses the fact that he's a Jew. Remember, he hadn't wanted to do that. Something is pressing him to give a religious reason as to what religious reason as to why he's not bowing down and reverencing Haman. Because God had said that thou shalt worship the, the Lord thy God only, and him shalt thou serve. Remember, there were three Hebrew children, one, three, three, three Hebrew young men one time who wouldn't worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And they came to the king and said, We are not careful to answer thee, O king. I mean, there is a place for disrespect when someone is trying to get you to commit idolatry. This was divine worship, which is evidenced by the fact that Mordecai gives a religious excuse and by the fact that King Ahasuerus gave a command for this type of reverence. The second factor, why does it tell us that Haman was an Agagite? Does the word Agag mean anything to anyone here? Agag was a common name for the kings of the Amalekites. You say, well, I've read about one in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul took a while taking care of, and Samuel had to hack him into pieces. Remember? Agag of the Amalekites, God had told Saul to destroy him. Saul kept him alive, so Samuel hacked him up. Agag was a common name like Pharaoh. Can I prove that? Look at Numbers chapter 24 and verse 7. Numbers 24 and verse 7. Balaam here is prophesying away about the Amalekites, and he says, speaking of God, he shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. The king... The king of Israel would be higher than the king of the Amalekites, which is Agag. The kingdom of the Amalekites, if you keep on reading, you'll read about the Amalekites later in this prophecy that Balaam issues against that nation. They were the first of the nations, the Bible tells us. They mistreated Israel in the wilderness. When Israel passed through the Red Sea and entered into the wilderness, the Amalekites smote them on the backside and killed the weaker members. You know, when a nation is marching, guess who ends up at the back? The wheelchairs. They had the old people and the young and the feeble at the back. And the Amalekites came in in the back. And Exodus, the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, I'll not turn you there, God said, don't forget, but remember what Amalek did because I have a perpetual hatred toward that nation and thou shalt utterly destroy them. You put those two facts together. Here is hey, Mordecai being asked to worship as a deity an Amalekite. He wasn't going to do it. And his excuse was, I'm a Jew. Children, when you're asked why you don't celebrate Christmas, just tell them it's against your religion. My children want to know what they're going to do at school this year when they're asked. I just tell them it's against your religion. It's the easiest way. Don't worry about giving them an explanation. They're not worthy of your explanation. Just say it's against your religion and go on. 
What did Mordecai say? I'm a Jew. You can say that too. It'll work for Christmas. They, <laughs> the, the last boss I had at Michigan National was a Jew, and we always agreed on that one point of Scripture. He celebrated Hanukkah. And they don't have Christmas as Christians know it because they deny even the Christ of Christmas. They deny any Christ that's, so, that's come. And now the servants had been watching Mordecai. Now no man likes to get down and worship another man like God. And these other servants have been watching Mordecai not do it. And they ask him, why aren't you going to do this? You're breaking the king's commandment. And so then in verse 4 they go and tell Haman because they wanted to see what was going to happen. I mean, if Mordecai can get away with this, so can we. You know, here's, here's real tattle telling right here. They just want to see how the matter is going to stand, see if they can get Mordecai in trouble or to see if they can get away with not bowing down to him themselves. And he had told them he was a Jew. Now then Haman starts watching Mordecai, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. So he starts watching him and he realizes, this man is spiting me. And he knows he's a Jew. Mordecai had to give away his people, but God's providence is taking care of things. Mordecai had to give away the name of his people. Haman now knows it. And do you think an Amalekite knew anything about the Jews? King Saul did do a pretty good job. He may have left Agag for Samuel, but how many others were there left of that particular portion of the nation? None. None. They saved the best of the beasts alive for sacrifice, if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here's something about Haman, though, in verse 6. And verse 6 fits so well with the character of the Amalekites. He thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. You know what that means? He was so angry that Mordecai wouldn't bow down and do him reverence and so upset at finding out that he was a Jew that he said, there's no way I'm going to be satisfied with just killing Mordecai for this irreverence. I'm going to wipe out the entire race of the Jews. He scorned. Listen, that's too lowly for me just to kill one man. I'm going to show my power. I'll wipe out the people of that man. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, do you know which Jews that included? Yes, it included them all, it says. Do you know which Jews it excluded? None. Where were the Israelites trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple? It was a province of the Persian Empire. Here is an effort to try to wipe out the Jews and exterminate them. And what we will take up studying next Sunday, the Lord willing, beginning in verse 7, are the means that Haman pursued to try to accomplish that goal. What we have right now, though, is the developing of a plot to destroy all the Jews, which means the queen and Mordecai 
and the rebuilding going on in Israel. But God has other plans, as we shall see. I'm thrilled the God of heaven is able to raise men up to knock them down. Remember the cat and mouse, the cat and the squirrel, the cat and the chipmunk that I've tried to describe to you before. For you, for some of you pitifully underexposed people who have never seen a cat play with the mouse, you can't appreciate what I'm saying. The cat will let the mouse live in order to prolong the enjoyment the cat can get from torturing the mouse. God promoted Haman for greater enjoyment in seeing him fall. And did he fall? Literally so, indeed. He did fall. As Psalm 35 said so well this morning, into his own destruction, let him fall, as we read. The providence of God, it's there in almost every verse, as you see God dealing in the affairs of men. Where are you working today? Who have you met there? Who could help you later down the road? You don't know. What did Esther know when she was a little orphan girl with her cousin raising her? Did she ever dream that she'd be queen of the Persian Empire? Not likely. You may not dream of what God has in store for you, but the Bible tells us that God is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we are able to ask or think. Do you think Esther ever hit, the knee, hit her knees beside her bed and prayed for God to make her queen of Persia? Too much to ask. Too much to think. God is able to do exceeding abundantly. A little orphan, yet beautiful, and that beauty for a purpose. Don't forget that God has a purpose for you. How do you find God's purpose for your life? Obey everything he has told you to be as wise as you possibly can be, and he'll take care of the rest. Esther and Mordecai were as obedient as they could be. We can see their characters unfolded in Scripture. And God did the rest. May God bless the preaching of his word.